Hello, welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. It is a true Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. And tonight, we are tackling kind of a, a nebulous subject, but a, a, a great one. In the wake of um, the new Lana Del Rey record, which is phenomenal, on uh, the summer of Lizzo, uh, we're talking about sort of persona as rock star, the creation of a character um, outside yourself to sort of um, articulate your art and your music to the broader world. Um, what do you guys? Uh, what do you guys think of the new Lana Del Rey, Norman Fucking Rockwell? I uh, I really fucking love it. It's um, it's Norman Fucking Rockwell. I fucking love it. <laughs> um, we don't no, have to insert fucking yeah, into I every. Said that as I was. <laughs> but you know, I think it's a it's a great record. It's um I I don't I can't say that I, like I've dug super deep into Lana Del Rey. I've always really liked her stuff, and it was one of those artists that kind of came on the scene and had a lot of backlash. I felt like initially for and I wasn't quite sure why, you know. Um, and then I remember hearing like video games and and really enjoying it and kind of digging in a little bit. But I think this album um, is definitely, she's at the peak right now. I mean, she, lyrically, it's um, just right, you know, really raw. Um, and also, I think Wynn and I were talking, like, prior to Chris, Christian to you jumping on, it, it skates that fine line between, like, you know, just boldness that could really ruin a song with one wrong turn. And she seems to make all the right turns on this record. Um, I think it's pretty phenomenal. It's the best stuff, I think, yeah, is I think always, like, the stuff that skates closest to the edge of, of you know, and you're nervous that it's going to go over the over the brink, but it doesn't. It just holds together, and it's just, I mean, that's a, that is a skill in comedy. It's you know, like naming a record Norman fucking Rockwell that could go It, be, it better be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah it exactly. Is, it is definitely walking the fence. Um, yeah, no, and there's there's a sort of uh, quality about it, I think, that, that like, could very easily stray into the sort of Nora Jones world um, where, you know, it, it, it's a it's a throwback sort of format of music. Um, it, it's definitely got some sort of anachronistic uh, character and, and features, I think, um, or maybe not anachronistic, but just, you know, it's very retro um, and sort of by design, by, by, uh, by title. Um, and yet that, while it always carries with it, I think the potential to, uh, to sort of go astray, this is um, very much... Uh, it feels new and fresh and bright and um, and and pretty unusual and sort of very current at the same time. I I, I don't know if you you can help sort of tease out that sort of juxtaposition. Well, the the thing that I'm I'm thinking is you know you the whole purpose of setting up this creating this character is, a lot of times for people is because they. You know, because it it helps you um, sort of tackle the issue you might have of putting yourself so nakedly forward. Um, you know, and and really committing to putting your your writing, your art, your music out into the public eye, and having it be judged. And and it's funny, Jerry, you mentioned the backlash. I don't have that full of of a. Um, recollection of what the backlash was over, but to my to the best of my recollection, it was sort of that she was a product and that she was created by the label and that she was a rich girl from New York, which you know, blah blah blah. But um, you know, in this case, I think um, you know this is. She's actually from Lake Placid. Oh yeah, that's of all places. that's yeah. wild. 
but you know, um, I think uh, you know in this case, it's sort of it's interesting to see the confidence level because I do think the the backlash kind of shook her at the beginning. Um, confidence level kind of supersede the ability to to uh, pin any any real um, criticisms on her because the stuff is great and um, you know she's sort of bold enough now to put it you know put it out. Um, I wonder. She's also. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Finish your thought there, and then I'll jump in. No, I'm. I'm just thinking. You know, I'm wondering if, uh, you know, now having this, you know, Lana Del Rey, the, her birth or her name is actually Lizzie Grant, um, and uh, you know, having this sort of Lana Del Rey character, so to speak. Um, emboldens her, but at the same time, I wonder at this point if she if she even needs that extra, you know, uh, shield from the from the public. Yeah, I mean, it's a good good question, and I, I think you know it's become obviously her kind of alter ego or whatever, and and you know I think something that uh, she's kind of got a look and a sound. But I, I remember the initial backlash being just that, and you kind of named it. And maybe I'm overblowing it, but I, I just remember kind of wondering what the big deal was. And, and I think initially it was she, her album, her first album was Born to Die, I believe, mm-hmm. and uh, in 2012. And it came, it, before it came out, she got a spot on SNL. And that was sort of like hadn't earned her stripes. So back in 2012, we were still, you know dependent on earning our stripes in kind of the indie world, I believe, or like kind of that, that you know, alternative uh, punk world or whatever, even though she's none of those things, just a pop star. But um, that was sort of what came out of that. And like, how does this person all of a sudden get on SNL without an album even being in print or being out in the, in the media? It's a, she certainly, I mean, my recollection of this was she certainly did... Um, catch a, a certain wave of hype. I mean, I, I think there was a big um, uh, profile of her in um, a, a relative... I think it was... I, I was going to say, I was going to say that for a, you, even if it wasn't. I have no idea. Yeah, no, it's a, a relatively, like, sophisticated, you know... Um, Called in favor kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, she You would want, to, you would want to have seen on your coffee table. Yeah. Well, and and I think that there definitely was uh, uh, support, um, but at the same time, you know, my my recollection was that the the pin was sort of put in that balloon fairly quickly, um, and and there was some uh, appreciation that maybe she actually was bringing some talent to the game as well. Um, it's well, yeah. also you know let's let's not forget like very easy to now hype the hype or rather hype the fact that everybody got it wrong last time. Um, you know, you, the, the media has the ability to, to completely reinvent its own version of what mm-hmm. happened um, every single time she comes out with an album. So, you know, you can already count on the fact that the next time they'll be reversing course yet again to create even more controversy from whatever the inertial point of reference was. So it's like uh, the fact that last time, you know, everybody blew it um, and... Uh, said she was terrible when in point of fact there were probably like you know two people who pushed back a little bit on the fact that she was getting so much advanced press but I think one thing too with having the Lana Del Rey sort of uh, you know identity versus you know um, and and kind of character 
is it's allowed her to some degree kind of cross over to different um, <clears throat> different genres and, and different audiences too because I don't think she really fits into I mean it's sort of 50s 60s moody music right mm-hmm. in general but I think like Christian mentioned with a very modern kind of feel and sound at the same time but I, I know like you know kids love her I mean we're you know uh, I think older fo- you know, older folks like us are like when and I uh, you know very much like her music as well and I think it's just like a, a, a way to kind of branch out and, and kind of cross over and not pigeonhole yourself either you can be kind of what you want to be to anyone yeah I mean I think the comps were you know you Christian you brought up Fiona Apple which is what immediately leapt to my mind when I heard her um, you know not a dissimilar yeah I think the go ahead the moodiness certainly um, is is you know has Fiona Apple written all over it. it there's something sort of uh, sultry about it, but it's also sad and um, y- you know uh, I think emotional but combative uh, a lot powerful, of things yeah like uh, yeah exactly um, and and I think the element that I would add to Lana Del Rey's to the description of Lionel Del Rey's music is um, a sort of melodramatic in a way that I don't know I ever really felt Fiona Apple's music was. Um, maybe that's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think she was a little bit, in a way, almost um, a little bit more restrained or conservative in some respects. Uh, and this, I think, is, um, it feels a little bit more stagey somehow. Uh, and I think that, you know, gets to the, the heart of what we're, what we're talking about here, which is like this this persona, this sort of fiction that she's created, which allows, allows her to, to take bigger it. risks with yeah. some of those um, at the margins there. And you know, it's it's sort of interesting. Like even Fiona Apple, I think, is just a is a is a mu- musical sort of touchstone, um, and and lyrical as well. But um, I, I'm sort of interested to hear your thoughts about like where this fits and sort of where it sits in like the the you know, a deeper tradition of music going back to the 80s and 70s. Well, it, um, it's hard for me to, I mean, I, I think it has a lot in common with the sort of singer-songwriter, um, you know, 70s singer-songwriter stuff, the sort of, you know, stuff I always harken back to, the Rita Coolidge's and the, you know, Linda Ronstance and the, you know, Fleetwood Max and, uh, you know, people of that uh, sort of AM 70s uh, ilk, Lou Harris even, but... Um, it's interesting to me, and, and I think we sort of hinted at this a little bit, you know, a couple, you know, a couple minutes, a couple minutes, a couple minutes, a couple minutes ago, but, but it's kind of, you know, she became huge without, I felt like I didn't, I didn't catch it, you know what I mean? Like, I heard of her, I liked her, and I, you know, but my relationship with her music was very individual. I didn't hear it on the radio, I didn't... Uh, you know, I didn't really follow her so much in the press, and, and suddenly she was playing arenas rather than clubs. I actually think I have to sum this up in the perfect quote, which was when I when I shared with Erica that I just listened to the new Lana Del Rey album, and it was um, really, you know, a, like incredibly good. Um, she just said, "Huh, that's random," <laughs> <laughs> which you know I think was it was a pretty good. Uh, it sort of encapsulates what you're describing, which is like, yeah, where the hell did she come from? Yeah. Um, or, but what's funny know, I, is having, uh, you know, like nieces and things, like they love her. Like she's big with ki- like younger 
girls and, and probably boys, it's, men too, or whatever, boys too, but like she's got a huge, huge following and has for years. Like It's that, pretty I sophisticated songwriting for it's, you know, for that kind of for that age, but I think that speaks to the kind of you know, maybe she does well, it's also a costume drama, right? It's also yeah. like it's evocative of like the thirties movie star and sort of a noir quality that I think like really invites a, a different type of spectator um, into the into the audience, um, and it's people who are there for like I, I I don't dare say like show tunes quality, but like certainly a the- theatricality to it. Yeah, there is. Um, no, no, I think that is. I think that's spot on. I think there is that. You know, there it is the um, you know it, it it would appeal to the same sort of people who love a theatrical. You know, who have Worn a worn a worn a groove in the Hamilton soundtrack, <laughs> even though they sound nothing alike. But um, I, I think you know the sort of musical theater is definitely a touchstone, yeah. even though it's pretty far away from musical the- what we consider well, typically musical and, theater music. And it's not crazy. I mean, the the fact is, like, I was always a little bit con- not confused, but I was. It's just it, it's like I was always a little bit surprised when I realized how many other people liked Fiona Apple too. Mm-hmm. Um, and how popular it was. And sort but of, you were like 10 when this, they came out, right? Uh, yeah, I guess that's right. Um, and I was sort of like, uh, no, I guess I was a teenager. I discovered it when I was a teenager. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was sort of around the same time that I went, I, I had my first like really deep dive into, into indie rock, and I realized how good um, and how dark her songs were. Uh, and I think for that reason, it was always sort of like, a little bit strange to hear it get the sort of pop radio circulation um, that, you know, in, in this case, like, I think the the comp is, um, well, Lana Del Rey is being played, you know, literally uh, adjacent to... Um, Bieber. Cardi B. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's not... Uh, it's just a different... It seems like a slightly different weight to the music. Um and perhaps also durability. I'm not sure. Um, time will tell. But so, uh, I mean, the, the persona, I think, you know, I, I don't want to detract from the conversation about Lana Del Rey too much, but, um, you know, I think it's got roots in sort of larger-than-life pop stars um, that run the, you know, full gamut uh, of, of, like, the Bowies and the... Um, yeah, I mean, Elton John, as much as... Uh, you know, that's the one that popped to mind for me, not sound wise, but just, I don't know, as a kid for me, like that's somebody who I always felt like was a character. Mm-hmm. Well, he, did, uh, you know, he played a straight guy for 20 years. Yeah, <laughs> Didn't change kind his of. name, you know? <laughs> but I yeah. mean, too, like dressing up, it also like had some, I don't know, I felt those songs, I mean, maybe they had like a heaviness to me because it's a different time period, but Bowie for sure, you know, changed I mean, Bowie inhabited characters you know, multiple times that he, you know, named and, and then dispatched of, um, you know, he sort of ran through them where Elton John ran through more, but I mean, he was very costume oriented and, and, you know, none of them sort of became, I mean, they're, they're iconic, but none of them sort of became definitive of an era of his, you know, it's not like those are the glasses from right, you know, honky right. chateau, yeah. you know, or, or that's the feather boa and uh, glittery Dodgers Jersey from, you know, captain fantastic. Um, 
but they are, you know, they are all of a piece for him, you know, but it, like I said, I think this is the evolution and let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about the evolution of the uh, artist as a character. Summertime and the living's easy. Rally's on the microphone with Ross MG. All the people in the dance will agree that we're well qualified to represent the LBC. Me, me and Louis, we're gonna run to the party and dance to the rhythm. It gets harder. Welcome back to Brother, 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 and Brother. We're uh, all together again talking about uh, <laughs> Lana, Del Rey, Lana Del Rey album and uh, Persona Star. So, you know, kind of having a conversation around this character that she's created, this excellent album, Norman fucking Rockwell, that's out now. And um, kind of looking at some of the origins or some other artists that have kind of created a character and, uh, you know, kind of grown um under disguise i guess to some degree even though um their personalities seem to be shining as they get better and better so um when i mean you're in the land of the 70s you had like kiss and um oh yeah Bowie and <laughs> cooper yeah, and alice cooper you know who was an actual character you know i think you know there's a different there's sort of you know I broke it down into uh, three different sort of categories and then i you know, those broke down into further categories, but basically somebody who completely renames that renames themselves, rebrands themselves and, and exists on stage or in public as someone that they're not yeah. like an Alice Cooper, uh, Buster Poindexter kiss. Um, and, uh, and then there's the people who sort of, you know, whose iconography, you know, and this goes way, way back, but their iconography sort of grows into its own, you know, sort of, you know, exaggerated persona. And that's almost, you know, currently like a Lizzo, who, you know, who sort of goes by a nickname and, and, you know, has this exaggerated personality, but that sort of, you know, emanated from Elvis. Um, you know, Elvis was sort of, uh, you know, a series of, um, defining attributes that you could that you could identify and then you know there's the the people that sort of exist without you know sort of trying to keep a mystery as to what their actual persona is and in that case i think of sort of you know lady gaga everybody knows she has a real name and that she has a real life and you know i i wonder two things uh in this case which is one you know, I, I'm interested in talking about how you used to be able to sort of mythologize things and have an air of mystery and how that's impossible to do now with the amount of uh, exposure that everybody just automatically has. Um, and then... Oh, go ahead. I think, just, I, th I think the dynamics change, right? Like, right. I don't know that it's, it's actually impossible to, to maintain anonymity. We were 
we were talking about an example, um, Daft Punk, uh, in which you know these guys have managed to sort of um, melt away uh, into the scenery and sort of remove their personalities. I think part of it is I'm not really so sure <clears throat> in that particular case, um, you know, what the individual personalities would actually add, and part of that is the fact that it's not music with lyrics. Um, so you're not necessarily um, searching for a, a person to, uh, you know, uh, sort of affix these a fixed depth of emotion. Yeah, <laughs> right. You're 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 actually kind of comfortable with the idea that like a robot or laptop, like sent to us from outer space, contained this amazing. Um, yeah, you're not you're not as interested in the personality like, behind. It's more interesting to be a robot yeah. actually playing that music than it is the personality. Totally, <laughs> and um, also visually and it gives like, you. Uh, you're abs- yeah, sorry. I mean, I, you you took the words out of my mouth. Yeah, the iconography is just awesome. It's like it's perfect for the music. It's a it's a it's a beautiful compliment. Um, but I I think on the point about the internet's uh, ability to like. Or, you know, or the, the fact that it sort of prohibits people from becoming um, anonymous, or uh, you know, sort of from drumming up, I think some of the um, uh, the fake persona. Um, I, I don't know that it prevents you from doing it. I think you just have to live it. Like you actually have to live it off stage as well. You like Prince. Gotta, uh, yeah. Or I'm thinking about MF Doom. It's like we know who he is, but we accept this alter ego because. It's more fun. He is relentlessly consistent um, about uh, like stepping. He's so nimble, stepping in and out of the verse, um, and like you know, making sort of just layer upon layer of, of sort of like meta reference to his own um, character that he's playing, uh, and it and it sort of it it rotates and evolves. But like he's he's also an MC and a guy and somebody we could, you know, write or read a book about. Um, and I'm sure one day that book will be written. But, um, but you know, while he's on stage, we're just sort of comfortable to let it happen. Well, that's sort of the Sun Ra approach. I mean, that was sort of a, a you know, that he was one of the forerunners of that, where, of sort of just creating a completely, um, you know, completely, completely, uh, it, you know, a 360 kind of um, alter ego that has a fake history and and uh, or a you know, I, it, which I think is really fun and interesting. Yeah, it's sort of it doesn't need to be a secret in order for it to be something um, in order for it to be a stage presence that we all sort of like buy into our disbelief and believe in. Yeah, and I think um, like George Clinton's a little bit like that too. Yeah, I was gonna mm-hmm. say um, Funkadelic and Parliament. Yeah, he's he's just much, a name change away from Sandra too. Yeah. Yeah, he's sort of this ever shifting like palette of, you know, um like super characters. Uh yeah, but it's a little bit of a shapeshifter and you're never really quite sure what's the stage presence. And you know, I think in a in a funny way, um I mean everybody does this when they get on stage, right? And and that's sort of the the point it's I think. The that degree to which you do it. Rays are making. Exactly. It's like there's a degree of um I don't want to say insincerity, but maybe um, uh, there's something that's, you know, anytime you get up to perform, um, it, it's, it changes the like degree of honesty with which you're connecting with, with somebody you're communicating with, right? Um, so it's like, 
you're sort of putting on a show um, in different contexts, you know, multiple times a day, uh, and it's just sort of taking that to one, like, sort of extreme limit um, by, uh, by sort of amplifying this. this it's a good point. I mean, I think there is, yeah, I mean, we're, we are talking about performers and artists who, you know, take on a certain persona for sure, and I think just some people take it to a different level. I think what's interesting and kind of what we were talking about earlier, though, is I think when you mentioned it really early on, we were talking about Lana Del Rey, is it kind of a guise for, like, a insecurity or, or something, a way to get, you know, kind of your, your honesty out or, or, you know... It's a protective measure. Behind. It's yeah, some degree, and it is, you know. I mean, I think Guar, for sure, is a band that, you know... <laughs> well, they've got some very emotionally, um, you know, charged. sort of delicate exactly. lyrics. Um, but one, I think there's a couple of interesting... rules, by the way. <laughs> one thing I, you know, I, I do, you know, I, I yeah, and very welcome anytime they were in town, because I, I was, from what I was going to say, which is, you know, we, we've spent enough years going to see indie rock bands that kind of, yeah. you know, you know, we could use a kick in the ass in terms yeah, of could use know, theatrics and, and performative <laughs> quality. But when when I just uh, going back and, and and doubling down on your Daft Punk, which you you know you aptly said was them sort of disappearing from uh, the world as people and and you know letting their iconography sort of speak for themselves. There's another band that's even you know more bold in that sense, and that was Gorillas, which created an iconography instead of a, in place of a band. Yep. Yes. Uh, and no, that's absolutely right. And that and it and it worked seamlessly and kind of beautifully. Um, and I think it was. I, I'm. I'm a little bit hesitant to say, but I, I think it was—I think it was kind of unique to a moment and like the the tail end of like the music video era that made that so efficient and possible. The fact that they had—they still had a lock more or less on like the distribution of images of the band, um, and so you—you know—if you Google Gorillas now or whatever, like you're gonna get an equal part number of these cartoon drawings of apes, but also, um, you know, actual stage performances and whatever. Um, and I think that for a while, when this was the music video, right, when it was like the animated music video, and you sort of started to realize that these were, uh, that these were these playful personas, rather than just Damon Albarn, um, and, you know, then it, it, it really, it really did work. You sort of, you, you were forced to accept the, uh, the story. I remember, I remember being shocked the first time I saw that they were touring, thinking yeah. that it was entirely a studio and video uh, art piece, and um, and thinking like, how are they going to pull this off? Well, the tour kind of was. It was a you know, I mean, it was people playing behind cartoon images. Yeah, but I mean, this is you know, as we went to see the Chemical Brothers last month in Forest Hills, I mean, that is how probably a gorilla show looks, uh, large screens, you know, projected yep. very little, um, you know, of the actual musicians having to, um, you know, sort of, uh, carry. Yeah, the, it, was the, a, it was, a, and I think you definitely are right, Christian, and no need to hesitate. It was 2001 when that first album came out. So it was very much kind of the end of the video music video area and the beginning, I, you know, there wasn't much, 
um, in way of like you know streaming videos or, or there certainly wasn't any internet. way to, to do it any other way yeah I mean there's probably internet was kicking around maybe who knows but like it was not something that was um, you were getting your music off of by any means it was very much the CD age um, so yeah I think they they kind of took a visual level and kind of hid behind it even though it was always they never hid their identities by any means it was always you knew who was in the group or who was on the record mm-hmm. but um but yeah and the tour was a big deal because it was this weird and people went to see you know but it was concept first which was yeah absolutely it was all concept yeah no it's interesting when and then you know there's uh <laughs> you know, then there's the people who start believing their own mythology. But either, I guess when I was talking about mythology and sort of creating mythology, I, I actually, you know, harken back to some of the misinformation that, you know, existed in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, 90s, even, um, you know, where there, you know, there were these room, you know, these rumors would come about, I mean, the, the, you guys can't even imagine the mythology around Kiss. Uh, a band I know. I was going to say, I, did people actually think Kiss was like aliens from Detroit? Oh, yeah. or something? You know, but I mean, I would have kids <laughs> in like my fourth did grade anybody class. Think they were being actually like, good? Gene Simmons actually killed a man and took the dead guy's tongue and sewed it onto his own tongue um, so that it would be longer. I mean, this is kind of. And this were you kind of, like? That's fucking gross, dude. I would imagine around yeah, Alice Cooper as well, right? <laughs> Same kind of shit. I, I, I have to say, my my knowledge of physiology at, at, at fourth grade was was pretty weak. Um, you know, and, and I'm sure my uh, um, you know my rumor mongering uh, was equally ill informed. But I do remember Christian as a kid, and I know you've you've denied this in the past. But you, I remember you telling me when you were a little kid that Marilyn Manson was really the uh, the dorky kid from was the Paul Wonder from Years. Wonder Years? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I. Well, there was a lot that. of um, Neil. Can you also have last... you ever seen him in the same place at the same time? Because that's all I'm asking. Nope, I can't say I yeah. have. So, um, so but but the they other, were the, the thing. I mean, on the Marilyn Manson point, though, and Kiss similarly is like there's a whole um, like vast sphere of alter ego shit in metal that I think we're kind of I think probably rightly like tabling for the sake of this conversation. <laughs> yeah. um, because you know sometimes sometimes those guys also like kind of bring that mythology into the real world um and then get you know like life sentences and stuff yeah um, that, that, that's there's some pretty good stuff yeah this is the uh, the world's first uh Gogoroth and uh uh lana del rey double header podcast so. <laughs> yeah exactly um yes the only time that uh the the funkadelic and panzer christ will be mentioned <laughs> in the same podcast episode um but uh yeah no i i think that, I mean, that stuff is so, I guess, well, you know, actually, all right, so without getting into specifics, I do think it's it's worth saying, like, they are they're playing on many of the same emotions in their audience that um, any superstar alter ego is playing on. They're, they're toying with this sort of sense of reality and, and you know, um, what is just an act and what's the real thing. Um, and, you know, I think uh, in an era of these, like, super, like, star um, rock band leaders like the Robert Plants and Mick Jaggers of the era, um, like, Bowie was really trying to, like, force you to think about 
where his rock star persona ended um, and, and whether he was the same guy off stage as he was on. Um, and I think that that is part of the motivation for certain metal acts, although as I'm saying this, I'm also kind of reconsidering and wondering, you know, in a lot of cases it's also just kind of like a much more um, uh, maybe almost like childlike or, or, you know, impulse to just like shock. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. even, even, so. even a band that, you know, didn't, you know, was the antithesis of, of you know, the makeup and, and uh, you know, um, you know, uh, stage, um, you know, sort of theatricality was Slayer, and but their iconography and their you know sort of adherence to this sort of badass satanic uh, thing, you know, made you believe. You know, I mean, they came out in the eighties, and I thought they were Definitely far more sacrificing children. And <laughs> well, no, I just thought they were far more uh, adherent to their own message than yeah. than they were. I mean, I, again, I was a young teenager when they came out thinking that, like, these guys actually believe this shit, but it turns out they're, you know, I mean... Turns out they like sports, too. <laughs> yeah, once I found out Kerry King was playing on, you know, the guitar solo on Fight for Your Right to Party, um, <laughs> I can't... They, that disab, disab, you know, disabused me of that myth. Yeah, when you, like, find out that the guy drives a Mazda, it's like all of a sudden, he's, like, not, you know... Like, the, the fear of his, like, sacrificing a goat on, you know, some kind of funeral pyre doesn't really seem um, quite as plausible. Uh, I, I think, um, like, maybe Rob Zombie a little bit. Um, and certainly, uh, White Zombie was, like... I mean, I guess, you know, the, the theatricality that we've been talking about was, like, played out in another format, like, in another art form um, with all of his, like, movie slasher horror shit. Yeah, so... Um, I mean, I think there's, I think there's a, two versions, too. There's that sort of cartoonish version of, like, a, a Rob Zombie. Like the cramps. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, you kind of have that Buster Poindexter you mentioned before, um, Cooper, stuff like that. Where, and then there's the kind of Bowie, Lana Del Rey version where it's, you know, I think it's somebody that starts off a little bit more of a persona and becomes that person more as they grow, you know, or as they get more confident or whatever it is. So, so where does uh, Garth, where does Chris Gaines as Garth Brooks uh, <laughs> fit into that? Uh, you should, you, you know, a thing or two about Venn diagrams, Christian. The lead guitarist of Guar, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm sorry. I actually, I, I, uh, I just, I, I just looked at a picture of Guar, and it just it makes me smile every time. <laughs> Fellow Virginians, <laughs> my, my birthplace of Richmond, Virginia, right there. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, they used to be. They used to play in DC all the time. And oh, it was yeah. like, sure. <laughs> the the double headers were always funny because, first of all, who the like, who who can play with them? <laughs> like it's just there's no appropriate like no band takes itself unseriously enough really to like, to to share a stage with those guys. Um, and James Taylor like, and Guar. Yeah, Chris it's Gaines. like no matter how no. No matter how like sort of much levity you think you have in your act, and like how um, uh, sort of open to like jokey criticism you are, um, I think 
you really have to be like secure uh, to get on, like to, to share, you know, to, to get on a, a double bill with them because it's like no matter what the hell happens, um, you're going to get up and you're going to take yourself seriously and you're going to play your songs and then fucking Guar is going to come out <laughs> and like everyone is going to like Guar on laugh. everything. Or Guar <laughs> yeah, being exactly. like and interviewed on awesome. like Headbangers Ball in full costume back in the... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like... It's, exactly. It's like never break character and they're perfect at it. Like it's so good. Uh, well, that brings me back. I sure do like Guar. Um... So yeah, I mean, I guess they they take their. What, what about uh, the sort of? What, so where does where does a guy like Andy Warhol fit into this mix? Um, he, obviously not a, a not someone who was making music himself, but I'm thinking about the way that it, he sort of viewed. Um, Commodified. Or, yeah, as 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 a confection, hmm. like, and that really is what we're talking about. I think a little bit, right? To a degree, I think it's, you know, I mean, it's always, in, he, there was always a, a sort of ironic distance that he kept from everything and, and everything uh, that followed in the art and music and, um, you know, visual arts owes a, owes a little bit of a debt to him, although I don't think he fully invented that kind of thing, but he certainly is the uh, uh, name most associated with, with keeping an ironic distance from actually... Um, you know, from the art that you're making. I think in a lot of cases, you know, uh, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's almost contrary to what we're saying with, uh, with Lana Del Rey, where it's a sort of protective measure that to have this persona, um, or maybe it isn't, maybe it is actually 100% there. He, his was just a more cynical, um, masquerading as a less cynical uh, manner of doing that kind of thing. And you think in his case it was very cynical. It's very cynical, but but it was always played off as not cynical. Um, you know, the, his whole refusal to, like, swear and, and do things and sort of be like an, oh, gee, I didn't think about that. Yeah, you know, it was yeah. a very... Innocent. He, uh, he sort of invented that sort of playing dumb, um, but being a, ma- you know, the chess master and, uh, you know, manipulation... Uh, the master manipulation. Um, so, you know, he's sort of the puppet master, but, um, you know, I think there is, uh, but I think there, you know, there really was, I mean, I think if you boil it down, that kind of detachment, it was his safety, was his um, protective shield around around committing um, to really uh, thinking these ideas were... Um, Worthwhile and, and should be taken seriously in a weird way while he was actually getting them to be regarded as worthwhile and taken seriously. That was a very, very Byzantine way of getting around to that point. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry about no, that. No, I think you, you successfully uh, obscured the, you know, or sort of, yeah, the, the, the actual, like, hunk of art there in the, in the center of that um, comment. Um, part of your alter ego. Uh <laughs> But yeah, he was a he was so, a master myth maker. Yeah. Um. Well, I think that's kind of I mean, all of the people we've kind of name checked, that's in a sense have left you know that sense of myth. I mean, I think to some degree they're all whether it was Bowie, Cooper, Guar, Chris. You know, there is that weird kind of uh, you know 
commitment. Sort of myth making that's going on there. Yeah. Should we listen to some Guar, take a break, and come back? <laughs> yeah, we'll come back and end it like Fuck we end yeah. everything. The brutalist podcast of all time. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, we are going to end this podcast where we end every podcast with uh, a question that tends to send people running to the aisles, and that is, uh, I'm pointing at you, Christian, what are you listening to? Oh, I think Jeremy should probably go first. <laughs> You've actually had a month and a half to think about this this time. <laughs> Damn it, Christian. Um, so I've been... Uh, Gosh, what have I been listening to? So a couple things. Um, I've been really, really into the new Ezra Furman album. Um, what is it? Twelve Nudes is the name. Twelve Nudes. Right? And it's uh, I I really, really. I mean, as much as I like uh, Norman fucking Rockwell, Twelve Nudes is right up there with it right now. Um, I, I think it's a great album and uh, kind of been nonstop. I've been really addicted to it. It's uh, it's great. It's a punk record. It's a punk record, but it's also got a bit of that like glam theatrical stuff we've been talking about. I mean, it's it's a it's a very urgent, very like uh, immediate record and um, tight, and I, every song is great. Um, I love it. I think you guys both enjoy it as well. And um, I'm bummed I can't see him, but when enjoy. Thanks. And, uh, I actually, I actually, there's there's a guy who would actually, or a person that would actually, I think, really benefit from making a larger persona. Um, yeah, and it might be the very case that that's coming up that he's getting. I mean, I believe this album is going to get a lot of uh, buzz. I know, I think Pitchfork reviewed it today, um, which we sent over. But it's, uh, you know, it's an album that, uh, you know, I've turned a couple people on to since we kind of were talking about it when it first dropped. And, um, you know, his last album was on our, our top of last year, right? Was it 2018? Yeah. Yeah, so Transangelic, again, yeah. I imagine we'll be going into detail on, on uh, 12 News as well on 2019's list. Um, and then aside from that, I, I finally, like when Wynn had mentioned this in, in past pods, but did uh, bite the bullet and um, so happy that I did of uh, Tales from the Tour Bus, Mike Judge's um, animated series. And he does second seasons on Funk, which I have yet to watch, but I did watch the first season on Country. It's pretty brilliant, and um, not that I didn't believe you when just didn't have access to it prior, so it's on Cinemax, or you can grab it on Amazon. Um, if you have to cherry pick or you don't want to buy the season, <laughs> I would say uh, don't miss Johnny Paycheck, uh, Billy Joe Schaefer, or the two-part Waylon Jennings episodes, because they're um, absolutely like beyond mind-blowingly <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> And great. Um, yeah, for those who don't know, it's a, it's an animated series for, by Mike Judge. Obviously, uh, Mike Judge of um, you know Office Space, uh, Silicon Valley, and uh, 
Beavis and Butthead, maybe. <laughs> Beavis and Butthead and, uh, and uh, uh, King of the Hill. Sorry, that was the one that was escaping me. Um, but uh, he, it's, it's an animated stories as told by sidemen about the singers that they are performers that they worked with. So it's basically, you know, George Jones's backing band or Billy Joe Schaefer, Shaver's. Uh, yeah, who's actually you know. one of the few guys who's still alive, and, and um, or maybe he's not alive actually anymore, but he has commentary throughout the thing. It was definitely alive when he was filming it. It's, it's fucking hilarious. Any yeah. sort of uh, degenerate kind of like hip... I mean, it brings you back to like just... You know, we always think of sort of like metal or punk or, you know, hip hop as being this kind of edgy uh, music where these bad boys or bad people, you know, kind of like got in lots of trouble. Watch the country series of <laughs> Tales of the Tour Bus because it's like as brutal and as fucking hilarious as anything you've ever seen in music. So, Christian, what are you listening to? So, I just watched uh, season two of Mindhunter um, and. I, you know, I know this is normally a, a session reserved for recommendations, but I wanted to talk to you guys about this because I, I wasn't so sure that I, I loved it. I thought it was, um, I thought the first season was extremely well-paced and uh, it, it sort of had all of the lurid details that one would hope for um, in, a, in a show about interviewing serial killers. Um, but I, I, for some reason, thought that this one dragged a little bit and uh, I found myself not really caring all that much what, uh, what happened. I mean like what what the actual conclusion was you know for the for the characters i really liked it so i don't think i'm i guess i am qualified to uh say i think um i don't know i liked the further uh reach into the main characters uh lives and then i i also you know i i guess part of it is having lived through both, you know, the Atlanta child murders and the BTK case and everything, and um, having a, a, a somewhat of a fascination with that stuff, it uh, it touched big, a big lot of. Um, I, I like, you know, I, I to me, it, it it's like BTK, you know, BTK. <laughs> yeah. So you can re-record. I, I mean, everybody has a fascination with serial killers. I, I too, I, you know, I actually, I haven't finished it, but I, I watched most of it the other night, and um, it's the first show in a while that I kind of got. I, I liked the first season a lot, and I, um, I don't know, I've had a trouble getting minus Tales of the Torbos getting hooked into a series in a while, and and I got right back on the serial killer and started writing letters to local newspapers immediately. <laughs> you know, you just felt it was your calling. <laughs> yeah. Being a mariner. <laughs> Sorry, so. making, uh, you know, cutting out letters. But, um, but yeah, no, uh, I, so what was it, Christian, that, that bugged you? You just thought it was slow? Um, or? I think, it, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think it was less ironically less serialized um, than the first season in the sense that, like, you didn't Feel that there was. Uh, I mean, every episode in the in the first season was pretty well contained, if my recollection is, um, around a, a a new character, right? Um, and I realized that that had a slightly law and order quality, and that they were, you know, they, they weren't bottled episodes, obviously, but they were in the tradition of um, bottled episodes and sort of police procedural stuff, but like obviously a very twisted. Um, uh, version of that. I think 
this the the sort of long-running storylines in this, which, by the way, did not get resolved, um, in, in my opinion. Like, I don't mean that's not as a plot spoiler. I just mean, um, like, I didn't feel that there was, like, a satisfactory tying up of loose ends. And it was, it was not a... Uh, it wasn't something that left me wanting for more. Um, it, it, you know, I, it's not like I'm, I'm psyched to tune into the third season to find out what happens. It's just like... Didn't leave you wanting more Atlanta child murders? Yeah, you know, um, I mean, absolutely. Uh, but I, I think, um, I, yeah, that was that was really, and I, I thought the the dips into personal and private life were pretty inconsistent. Like, I, I love that. Yeah, I love I give, that. I give you that. Um, and I, I love the actor uh, who who plays him. Tench. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's that's the thing is that that was a great you know he he and his He's wife and are uh, really good characters. I don't know what the hell that and, guy uh, has ever acted in where he wasn't a cop, but he is such a cop. Yeah, I was thinking that the other day. It's like this guy is such a typecast, but he's so good yeah. and yeah, it was great. Even even to the point that like yeah. and, and this is uh, a one detail I, I just I love about his acting is like there are moments where he it's like. It's like he's so stiff he couldn't possibly be an actor. It like it just it's it's a uh, um, and it's like there's you know he he's like in a very particular way will be slightly inarticulate about something, um, and it just it's yeah. like it's just perfect. It's the way it's the, it, it is the way people really speak, and it is the way that like people who you know do a lot of paperwork for six seven hours a day and like are you know he reminds me of an actor who i always really liked who um jerry might remember i'm not sure if you will christian but he reminds me a lot of brian dennehy Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. um who you know i think also was built to play a cop in every movie and if he wasn't you're always like why isn't he playing the cop yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> i mean i suppose so much better i suppose this, then he was the cop and his name is i think this guy's name is hoyt mcelaney um yeah. which is just a cop name i think he's and um, i think right it, it just to just to correct the record i do believe he could also play a football coach <laughs> oh yeah definitely yeah no that's exactly right it's like yeah uh, just the like the the single most Qualifying feature is the absence of a neck. Just like <laughs> <laughs> the pack. Of, I once heard the term "pack of franks." <laughs> back of your neck. <laughs> That's awesome. Anyway, um, yeah, you know. So I, I guess put it this way: I I did watch it to the end, and I will be tuning in again for for the next season um, because I really do think that it nails. Uh, it just it, it has a it has like atmospherics and it has a it has a mood that I just I love which is super dark, um, but I would love and where is is Fincher is it Fincher's project when yeah. yes yeah okay yeah it was originally uh, I mean it, which means he I mean he's sort of responsible for the look and feel and, and yeah I, um, establishing. I know he's a big part of it but it is such that feel and which I really like as well. Um, mm. But I'm curious to hear what else uh, what else you guys have have been watching. I've really just between well, I, moving I, and, and a variety of other things, I've, I feel like I've sort of missed out on TV for the last uh, two months or so. So I'm, I'm curious what's um, what's been popular. Get used to it. Yeah. Um, 
I I have a whole suitcase to unpack from the summer. But to be honest with you, one of the things I liked so much about Mindhunter, um, you know, uh, completely free and clear of the content of the show, uh, is the fact of when it hit because I was very desperate for a new show to watch at that point, and uh, didn't have much in the um, in the reserve tank. So I am looking forward to. I started the uh, right before we hopped on the spot. I, I started watching The Spy. With Sasha Sasha Baron Cohen, um, the uh, story of Eli Cohen, um, and I can't tell you a whole lot about it other than so far it's a it's a moody period piece about an Israeli spy uh, who masquerades as an Argentine businessman to infiltrate uh, the Syrian uh, the Syrian. Is What's he hunting? Uh, is he is he hunting runaway Nazis? Oh, no, cool. um, there's there are allusions to that, but no, he's actually there to um, establish a persona or to establish a character so that he can infiltrate the Syrian government during the Israeli-Syrian uh, conflict in the late '60s, I believe. Um, so there, that that is my uh, and and if it turns out to be really shitty, um, forget that I recommended it. But right now, it looks pretty good after episode one. So yeah, it was a really fascinating time in history for uh, for those those first uh, ten or twenty years of of Mossad. I think um, the the rules of engagement were sort of being redefined for uh, for modern you know developed democracies. So um, really understanding the the politics behind that is is just is awesome stuff, and it's it's really long overdue for for a great television show. So hopefully this is it. Um, and also, what was the, yeah, the was, little drummer boy was was about that that year as well? Yeah. Correct. Yep, that was another one I'd recommend if we if we didn't have a chance to. But it's a, this one's created by Gideon Raff, who is also oh, yeah. uh, a co-creator of the Israeli series that Homeland was based on. So um, that said, um, we are adding songs to the eight trillion ten best songs of all time, and I am going with. As I said, I hopped in Jared's car the other day. We were going to play tennis, and Olivia Tremor Control's Jumping Fences came on. And I asked if that song was on the list, and I confirmed it was not, and now it is. Perfect pop Excellent choice. Uh, Christian, where do you go? I will add Throwaways by Beach Slang. Nice. Nice. I like that song a lot. And, um, and, uh... I guess, honor of my absolute favorite um, episode of Toy- Tales from the Tour Bus, the Billy Joe Schaefer episode, I'm going with the uh, first t- song on uh, Honky Tonk Heroes, Black Rose. Nice. Uh, All right, you guys. Well, uh, glad to be back in the saddle here. Um, we will get together and do this again next I'm quoting Aerosmith again, Every Christian. Time. You know how much I love that. <laughs> yeah. We do. Enjoy school. <laughs> yeah. And uh, say hi. Uh, <laughs> Christian is now relocated to the, Bert, to the uh, I believe, the musical hotbed that gave us both Michael Bolton and uh, the Carpenters. No way. They're from here? Yep. Yep. Dag. Originally New Haven, All Connecticut. Right. There you go. Like, uh, like a Michael right, Bolton concert. <laughs> um, I'll have to grow up my hair in tribute. 
Uh, next time I'll tell you the story about when I met you, him. You have to shave the front <laughs> before you grow out the back, though. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. I'll talk to you guys later. There talk you guys. to you guys later. Bye. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartorian, Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.